Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It For was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, I'm not alone in the studio, thankfully. With me in the studio today is my wonderful producer, Mr. Dan Arnfeld. Good afternoon, Dan. Hello. It's good to have you here. Well, there's a lot to get to today. Now, if that sounds like Mr. Stephen Flurry, I borrowed that from him. So, but there is a lot to get to today. Actually, in terms of comments, I have two. Now that's that's a record. This is this is absolutely exciting. And uh, the the first one I want to read is from a young listener who is only seven years old. So so uh, I'm going to start putting all my trust in the seven year olds because because they'll at least write to me. But anyway, this is Nathan from Down Under, and all of you out there, you've heard from Lisa from Down Under. So this is Lisa's son. He says, hi, Mr. Leap. It's Nathan here, and I am seven years old. I really enjoy reading, too, and am reading through the series of The Famous Five at the moment. And so that that's also a young person's kind of set of books which I love. I'm up to book six. Well, congratulations, Nathan. That's good. He goes on to say, thank you for, for suggesting Treasure Island for me to read. It looks like a fun book with lots of adventure. I can't wait for Mummy to buy it for me. And so, so uh, Lisa had asked me if uh, I could recommend some books for Nathan and I. We are going to be reading uh, Treasure Island, actually, in this series I just haven't finished a full schedule yet. We're going to be reading Treasure Island, and we want that for the younger readers. But we're also going to be reading Gone with the Wind for all you women out there. And uh, actually, my wife is going to come on uh, for that for that series. So that's going to be coming up. And um, uh, here we are. It, it, uh, we're at the beginning of fall break. Fall break starts today after the last class and so so we have a lot going on and I, I some of your listeners I you know what's coming up we're we're going to be uh, heading for the Feast of Tabernacles here pretty soon my wife and I are going to Jerusalem we'll be taking some tours afterwards we'll be going to to uh, Petra we'll be doing a lot of uh, archaeological touring during the feast so we've been getting in shape. We've been walking every day. We're taking uh, the, the best shoes with us. So uh, uh, we're all trying to get everything done before we can go. So, so again, there's a lot to get to today. But anyway, uh, Nathan comes back and he says, have you been to Australia before? And yes, I have, Nathan. I've actually been there twice, but you were too young. In fact, you weren't even there yet <laughs> you know, when I was there. And he says, well, I hope to one day go to headquarters and see God's house. Well, I, I'm sure you're going to get that chance, uh, Nathan. You just keep reading and uh, keep supporting your mom and everything in Australia. You'll get there. He said, until I email again, I'll keep reading. So he really listens to the program. He's, he's got, he got the perfect conclusion there. All right. Second, second comment today is from Karen from PA. And... Uh, 
Uh, I'm really excited to hear from Karen, and uh, uh, she's very loyal. She says, I was leaving for work on Monday, September 18th. The strangest little raindrops came down and mostly sun shining. As, as I was driving, I saw the most beautiful rainbow. At times, it went across the whole sky. Such awesome colors. Said to God how much joy was in my heart. I, I uh, live about one and a half hours from Philadelphia. And I'm glad you live that far away from Philadelphia because it's probably not the nicest place right now. Even though I love visiting Philadelphia, I've, I've visited many times. So sorry this has nothing to do with your literature program, but hopefully you can enjoy God's rainbow. So she sent me this beautiful picture, and it is huge. It's a huge rainbow. rainbow. So thank you for doing that, Karen. And she also goes on to say, thanks again for sharing stories about Winston Churchill and also Shakespeare. So she's still listening. So, so I I, uh, I really appreciate the contact. It makes me feel good that people are out there listening. And uh, of course, I know you're out there, and uh, uh, that's really really exciting. On our last program, I finished uh, chapter seven of uh, you know my early life by Winston Churchill. In case you forgot what book we're talking about. <laughs> So, so I did finish chapter seven and I began chapter eight titled India. Now for today's program, I want to continue discussing chapter eight, but I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that we can push into, to chapter nine and, uh, uh, we'll see, we'll see what, what goes on here. So, so to, to get us connected again, uh, remember, uh, when we were talking about chapter eight, just the very beginning of it, I said that uh, essentially what I did is I pointed out that Winston Churchill's first step into India soil at the Sassoon dock was not the most soldierly. <laughs> the scene bears repeating, and so let's just go to page 101. And, and essentially what he did, his, his big entrance into India, he dislocated his shoulder. <laughs> and so, so that, that wasn't uh, probably the, the best thing for him. But he said, he's there talking. This is the very bottom of page 101. He says that they were, they were loud. First of all, you have to understand, he was on this ship for 23 days. And it took that long to get from England to India. Now, you're talking about 1896, by the way. So, so I mean, we live in such a fast-paced world. we got fast cars, fast, fast boats, fast planes. And uh, it's just, everything is fast. And it... it uh, it's like your life is over fast. Anyway, um, so, so he was stuck on this thing for 23 days. And then when they got close to this, um, the Sassoon dock, and by the way, if you, if you have a computer, if you, if you have access to the internet, you can still see p- photographs of the Sassoon dock today. It is amazing what's out there. And uh, all the people there uh, getting their fish, getting their supplies, it's just a, it makes me want to go to India myself. Only I don't want it to take 23 days if I ever go there. But, but anyway, uh, it, it really is an impressive thing. And so, so here, all of these, these young men, and there was 1,200 of them, by the way, on the ship, 1,200, they were, they were uh, you know, leaving England. They were going to probably one of the, the, the greatest parts of the empire at that time to India. They wanted to get off that boat as soon as they could. And, and essentially, they got in these little skiffs. And then uh, 
uh, he, he said, he's saying here, the boat rose up and fell four or five feet with the surges. I put out my hand and grasped at a ring, but before I could get my feet on the steps, the boat swung away, giving my right shoulder a sharp and peculiar wrench. I scrambled all upright, made a few remarks of a general character, mostly beginning with the early letters of the alphabet. <laughs> and so I'm not going to even try and figure out and say those words. But if you want to do something fun, look at the first five or six letters of the alphabet and you can imagine what he was saying, <laughs> you know. So, so, but I will not, I will not say those on the radio. Uh, and anyway, uh, he is, he's really a pretty humorous guy if you really, if you really want to think about it. Um, let's go, let's skip over now to page 102. Uh, he, he said, of course, he talked about the first letters of the alphabet, and then he says, I hugged my shoulder and soon thought no more about it. But, but then, this is where I think, I think, uh, Churchill is a really excellent writer. So, you know, he's looking back on his life. And, and he's, he's talking about what he went through. And remember now, he gets to Indy, he's still only 21. And he becomes 22 in the next chapter, you know, and when he get, we get into Bangalore. But he says, let me counsel my young readers to beware of dislocated shoulders. And this, as in so many other sayings, it is the first step that counts. Now, his, his didn't work. And he had to use the first five letters of the alphabet to make himself feel better. Anyway. In this, as in so many other things, it is the first step that counts. So here he takes this pitfall that he goes through, or, or the wrong step, and, and what he's, he's really doing, he's taking that, and he's pro providing an image to help young people that, look, be careful of the steps you take. And uh, I wish I had read this when I was you know, younger, because I didn't care about what steps I took. I mean, I did some really dumb things, uh, but I survived. He says, quite an exceptional strain is required to tear the capsule which holds the shoulder joint together. But once the deed is done, a terrible liability remains. Although my shoulder did not actually go out, I had sustained an inj injury which was to last me my life, which was to cripple me at polo, to prevent me from ever playing tennis, and to be a grave embarrassment in moments of peril, violence, and effort. Since then, at irregular intervals, my shoulder has dislocated on the most unexpected pretext, sleeping with my arm under the pillow, taking a book from the library shelves, slipping on a staircase, swimming, etc. So, so he, he's being honest, you know, his, his, uh, his arm went out even when he was slipping on a staircase. <laughs> Why was he slipping on the staircase, I ask? And uh, we know he liked his alcohol, so who knows? Maybe he didn't even feel it, you know. Swimming. Once it was very nearly out through a too expansive gesture in the House of Commons. And I thought how astonished the members would have been to see the speaker to whom they were listening suddenly for no reason throw himself upon the floor in an indistinctive effort to take the strain and leverage off the displaced arm bone. <laughs> so he's saying, look, if you can avoid it, don't dislocate your shoulder. Uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of the young people today aren't doing enough to dislocate their soldier any, I mean, shoulder anyway. Um, now, he goes on to another part here uh, for everybody out there listening that, uh, that, that I think is, is really, I don't know, I, I don't think I agree with him. And I'm going to say this and just 
Maybe this will really inspire you to comment. He said, this accident was a serious piece of bad luck. However, you never can tell whether bad luck may or not after all turn out to be good luck. Perhaps if the charge of the Durham, no, he, he was in the charge of the Durham. that's in India, I had been able to use a sword instead of having to adopt a modern weapon like a Mauser pistol, my story might not have got so far as the telling. So he's saying if he didn't have that dislocated shoulder, he'd had a sword and he probably would have gotten killed. But he had the gun, so he could uh, he could kill other people, though, real easy. All right. He says, one must never forget when misfortunes come that it's quite possible they are saving one from something much worse, or that when you make some great mistake, it may easily serve you better than the best advised decision. Now, this is where I have a little bit of, of uh, uh, disagreement with him. He says, life is a whole, and luck is a whole, and no part of them can be separated from the rest. And so, so what he's saying is, there's good luck and it's bad luck. There's, uh, but but the thing is, there's a, you have a whole life. But but what he's saying is, uh, is bad luck may not be something that you've done. It, it 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 may not be your fault. It was bad luck. And the thing is, is uh, let, let me just give you um, a, a definition of luck. Let's see. I think I have that. Yes, luck. This is this is the the uh, definition of luck. Luck says success or failure apparently brought by chance, rather than through one's own actions. And see, I like that definition because I agree with that. I mean, you could say, "Wow, this happened. It was good luck," but maybe you had a positive action that produced that. Or if you if you hurt yourself, I know one time I was we were driving. Uh, I was in a car with a really good friend of mine, and he was frustrated by the traffic, so he decided he was going to pass on the right. And when he was trying to pass on the right, he didn't see that he was running right into parked cars. And so, so I mean, if we had hit that car, that would have been very bad luck. <laughs> really bad luck. So, But it was, it was his action to do that. And so, so uh, thankfully, uh, what I believe is that God protected me that day and I wasn't thrown through the windshield into the parked car. And so, so th that's what I'm thinking about. So, so um, I think bad luck and good luck are actually a result of our actions. And, and we need to think about that. And of course, I th also feel in the picture that, that many of the good things that happen to us are actually produced by God. He's blessing us. If you're doing what God wants, he's going to bless you. And, and uh, you may not do an action, and it still comes. But then also, the bad things that happen to us, it could be because we're not living right. And there is a devil out there that does hate people that love God. And so, you know, he, he, I know I've been attacked by the devil. And, uh, you know, we just have to be aware of that. And uh, so, so again, I don't necessarily agree with him. And again, uh, remember now he's dead, and so so he's not even going to be listening to this. But again, I just think we need to to uh, you know learn some lessons from this that um, you know we can get ourselves into a lot of trouble and we can keep ourselves out of trouble. And a lot of it's going to depend on 
you know, sound thinking and, uh, you know, on living right as well. Uh, he goes on now to talk about, uh, uh, you know, he's trying to get everybody, really the youth, to, to you know, be, ex- be fit, be exercise fit. And, of course, we have a program here at the college that we really work hard to do that as well for our students. And I know even those of us in the faculty, we participate as well because we all need to be physically fit. He goes on to say, uh, he, he, now, in the, um, he's, again, rem- remember now, he's really talking about going to India. And uh, he, he goes on to say, okay, he gave us a little, ec- you know, uh, uh, education there. But he goes on in page 102, he says, let us resume our journey into what Colonel Brabazon in his farewell speech had called India. And he called it that famous appanage of the British clown. <laughs> He's really picking on poor, poor Colonel Brabazon. And, uh, uh, but, but here's the thing. I had to look up the word appanage and that's not a, uh, that, that's not a word that, uh, I, I would say it would be fluent in my vocabulary. But an appanage, and, and think about this, and, and really there is a lot about the British Empire in this chapter, India, that, that I think all of us can really appreciate and know. Uh, there's been so many, let's say, um, woke people that have really criticized the British Empire. Uh, there's communists that have, uh, they really hate the empire, and uh, that's still going on today. But he, he called India that famous appanage. Now, appanage means a gift of land, an official position, or money given to the younger children of kings and princes to provide for their maintenance. And so, so here, Colonel Brabazon, he may not be able to predict, you know, he may have had a list, but he was really smart. And he, and he really uh, knew how to educate younger people. And, uh, so, so here in this chapter, you know, after we get through the diso- dislocated soldier, uh, he really gives us a description of what life was like in India in 1896 and what he really experienced. And, and, uh, it, it's something, it's history that we need to really look at and really understand how valuable the, the British Empire was to some of these other areas of the country where they didn't have, you know, the greatest sewer systems, they didn't have the greatest businesses, they didn't have the greatest, um, you know, homes and things like that. And Britain changed all of that for them and, and even added education. He says, um, uh, he, he said, we, we were sent to, uh, into a rest camp at Pune and arriving late in the evening passed our second night after landing in a large double fly tents upon spacious plain. Daylight brought suave, ceremonious, turbaned applicants for the offices of butler, dressing boy, head groom, which in those days formed the foundation of the Calvary subaltern's household. All bore trustworthy testimonials with them from the homegoing regiment, and after brief formalities and salams, now I think everybody knows that salam is a greeting, you know, they, 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 they were uh, very friendly, they were very very respectful of the British soldiers and because they could get employment, they could get work. And, and, uh, it, it's not like there was this, well, we're going to just, um, you know, put you in chains and beat you and make you do things. They're coming to the soldiers saying, we want you to hire us. 
And so, so it's really different. It's a different view than what you hear in the world today. He goes on to say, uh, if you'd like to be waited on and relieved of home worries, India 30 years ago was perfection. And so, so he's there at 1896, so, so he's thinking about this 30 years later. He says, all you had to do was hand over your uniform and clothes to the dressing boy, your ponies to the sice, your money to the butler, and you need never trouble anymore. And so, so think about that. If you're handing your money over to a butler and he's Indian, you obviously trust him, you know, and, and, uh, and if just a few minutes, I'll show you, they were paid in silver. And so, so, uh, but the butler really took care of the money. He said, your cabinet was, was complete. Each of these ministers, and, and look what he calls them. He doesn't call them slaves. He says, each of these ministers, he said, entered upon the, the, uh, upon his department with knowledge, experience, and fidelity. They would devote their lives to their task. For a humble wage, justice, and a few kind words, there was nothing they would not do. Their world became bounded by the commonplace articles of your wardrobe and other small possessions. No toil was too hard, no hours were too long, no dangers too great for their unruffled calm or their unfailing care. Princes could live no better than we. And so so here... They didn't know what they were going to meet when they got to India. But now he's saying, wow, when I went to India, I lived as a prince because they were actually serving us. So, so in other words, you know, Winston Churchill and the, and the other subalterns were considered princes of the empire. And so, so uh, you know, it's, it's really pretty interesting. He says, among the group of suitors at our tent appeared two or three slices leading pony, polo ponies, and bearing notes from their masters, and then arrived with some commotion, a splendid man in red and gold frock coat bearing an envelope with a puissant crest. He was a messenger from the Governor Lord Sandhurst, inviting me and my companion Hugo Baring to dine that night at the government house. So, so remember, <laughs> you know, this was not just good luck. <laughs> I, I really believe this is God training this man for what he's going to be doing. So, so they were invited to the government house. He's 21 years old. Uh, you know, he did a little bit of stint in Cuba. <laughs> you know, he said, uh, thither after a long day occupied mainly in scolding the troopers for forgetting to wear their pith helmets and thus risking their lives, we repaired and enjoyed a banquet of glitter, pomp, and iced champagne. And so, so can you imagine 23 days on a boat with 1,200 men, <laughs> and now two of them get invited to the governor's house. And he said, His Excellency, and here's the respect he has for the, for the governor, His Excellency, His Excellency, after the health of the Queen Empress uh, had been drunk and dinner was over, was good enough to ask my opinion upon several matters, and considering the magnificent character of his hospitality, I thought it would be unbecoming in me not to reply fully. So, so here's this governor of you know this part of India. The queen, the, the queen empress. There, he's talking about is Queen Victoria. She is she would be considered the empress of India, but she was also queen of England. And uh, in other words, Victoria wasn't there and getting drunk. <laughs> you know, they were drinking to her health, and. Uh, 
so so it's interesting that that um, he's he's really looking at things. He's studying uh, India. And he goes on to say, I have forgotten the particular points of British and Indian affairs, which he sought my counsel. All I can remember is that I responded generously. I bet he did. (laughs) There were indeed moments when he seemed willing to impart his own views, but I thought it would be ungracious to put him so much trouble, and he readily subsided. He kindly sent me, uh, sent his aide-de-camp with us to make sure we found our way back to the camp all right. He goes on to say, on the whole, after 48 hours of intensive study, I formed a highly favorable opinion about India. Sometimes, thought I, one sees things more completely at first sight. As Kingslake says, a scrutiny so minute as to bring an object under an untrue angle of vision is a poor guide to a man's judgment with a sweeping glance which sees things in their true proportion. We certainly felt, as we dropped off to sleep, the keenest realization of the great work which England was doing in India and of her high mission to rule these primitive but agreeable races for their welfare and our own. And so, so to me, that is an absolutely stunning statement that he could see what greatness or what goodness that uh, England or the British Empire did for India, and they they brought in culture, they brought in education, and uh, the, the people really thrived on it. And uh, I know we even have one of our employees here, Topeka. Um, Topeka is from India, and she she was trained in British school. She said it was the best education she got. And so so uh, you know, but then if you get online and look, it's oh they did this, the British Empire did that. Look how cruel they were, how they, you know they starved these people. They did this, they did that, and there probably were mistakes. I mean, no, no human government is going to be perfect, but but on the whole, you have to look at the big picture, and uh, uh, you know I, I think that's where so many people uh, fail. Um, you know, with when they you know, get out there and they, they view what, uh, what happens, uh, in empires. And so again, so many, so many young people today have been so brainwashed by communism that they're willing to just criticize everything. Well, guess what? It's all the time we have for today's program. (laughs) So, so on our next program, I want to continue with chapter eight and I also want to get in potentially to chapter nine. And so I am talking as much as Winston Churchill probably does. You can buy My Early Life at Amazon.com. You may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. As I told you before, I buy a lot of my books from ABE Books. And you can find some. They're very fine. I mean, they're just brand new almost. Again, you may be able to find a copy in your local bookstore, but after all the communism flying in this country, who knows if you're going to be able to find anything about Churchill good in a, in a store, but you could try anyway. And uh, again, you can also uh, find a copy in your local library. If they don't have one, they can probably get one for you from uh, a, you know, a library system. Now, uh, please write me any comments from me. have the JBL at PCOG.org. And uh, you can follow JBL on Twitter at JBLiterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for Just the Best Literature. So until next time, keep reading.
You've been listening to just the best literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.